As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to Allocation Disorder. I am Sam Stasekel, joined as always by my friend and colleague Paul Tenorio. And Paul, it is, uh, we had Tam Christmas earlier this week, as I just coined it right now. <laughs> uh, the MLS Players Association released their biannual list of salaries. The first one is always the best one and the most insightful and the most interesting one, uh, which is something, you know, I think it's an annual tradition now that we devote a show to this, to this salary data. Um, there's a lot to parse through we will be parsing through all of it um players teams reflections um so yeah i i guess that's where we start what do you think of the name tam christmas i feel like it's okay but we can maybe do better i think i think it's definitely one where we are we are open to suggestions from listeners that that could coin whatever we want to call this <laughs> i'm sure there's some play on the word of salary dump that we can use wow let's not get vulgar here okay <laughs> it's hard not to get your mind out of it's the really hard scenario. not to. um the big headline i think from this salary data release um is that jordan shakiri is the highest paid player in mls and i believe in mls history with a salary of 8.15 million from the chicago fire that of course is on top of the reported 7.5 million dollar transfer fee that they paid to leon to acquire him earlier this winter that is a ton of of money, especially for the level of production that he has provided thus far. Of course, Shakiri will not be the highest paid player in MLS for very long. Lorenzo Nisigne is coming in less than two months now to Toronto FC. Um, and from what we've been told, Paul, I can't remember if you reported this, if I reported it, if we both reported it, his contract is like four years and $60 million. So he's going to he's gonna take that title by, by some margin. He'll actually be you know, on an average annual value basis, he'll be making more money than, uh, let's see, all but nine teams in Major League Soccer <laughs> currently. <laughs> um, so that's that's a fun little stat for you. Uh, but Shakiri is the highest paid player. Chicharito, second highest at $6 million. Gonzalo Higuain, third highest at $5.8 million, which is kind of astounding. And this goes into a little bit of a larger trend here, Paul. The highest paid players in this league don't really perform that well uh i went through and i counted up it's about 10 of the top 25 highest paid guys in mls are not having a great time of it 
Um, I would include Shakiri in that list, although he hasn't been bad and it's still early days for him. Iguain certainly. Pozuelo, I think, has to be on here at this point after the last year plus that he's had. Frank O'Hara, Douglas Costa, Adrian Hunu, Gaston Jimenez, uh, Carlos Salcedo, I think, probably in here, although still early days for him too, um, as well as Brenner, and then depending on how you count Josie Altidore, although he's technically not one of the highest paid in terms of salary, but in terms of overall compensation. Anyway, we can get into that a little bit more later. Um, but what stood out to you from from the top of this list? And, you know, is it time to start a dialogue about Jerdon Shakiri? <laughs> yeah, well, I think, you know, I don't, I forgot that they paid a substantial transfer fee for Shakiri as well. And when I went, when I saw these salary numbers, I went back and looked to, to double check on what he was making in France. He was making like four and a half million euros a year. So he received a substantial, reportedly. Which is what? Like about five and a half about, dollars? Yeah, five a little million more than five million dollars a year. So he got a huge boost in coming to the U.S. And mm-hmm. it's not like he was a player who was at a, you know, was in a good place with his club or could have gone to like a bigger club. This, you know, where I think like Insigne, you, you're paying a, a premium to convince him to come to Major League Soccer. I feel like that would be less so with Shakiri, considering that he wasn't playing in France. Yeah. So, I mean, you have to pay the premium to convince him to come. I think that's that that is still true is for how Shakiri. Much is the premium like is it, is it a well, three million dollar premium? Because that's think, what they paid. I think what you're driving at is that what could he get elsewhere? Right. Right. And, and well, to be fair, what can Insigne get? elsewhere he could probably command that type of salary in italy had he stayed shakiri i don't think he's getting this money anywhere else in the world yeah and 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 look i when i look at shakiri's production so far both of his goals are on penalty kicks he's got a few assists i think two of them are secondary assists but i think we should also be clear there's very little attacking firepower on the chicago fire roster so intended there Yes, no, but yes. I mean, they are they have been really bad in the final third. Casper Shavilko yeah. is their best player in the final third, not named Shakiri, and he's been hurt and also not great. They've had no wingers that are worth, you know, real money in MLS or real ability to score and create. Jonathan Bornstein has been I mean, has Bornstein's started played winger, games for them. Fabian Herbers, Ivanov who is is not a good player. They, they've struggled significantly in the final third. That should get better. I think Shakiri's numbers should get better now that Chris Mueller is in the lineup, Jairo Torres coming into the lineup. You'd think that with better players around him, he'll be better. But when I look at, for example, the fact that he's $2 million more than Chicharito Hernandez, the fact that he is $4 million more expensive than Joseph Martinez and Carlos Vela, $5 million more expensive in salary, base salary, than Carlos Vela. You know, $4 million, $4.2 million higher in base salary, almost $5 million more than Zella Ryan. You start to question how much more effective could he have been? Why, why was this worth the price? At least Chicharito's bringing his, his filling stadiums, you know? I mean, yeah. he, he, he put 30,000, I think they had 30,000 people when the Galaxy came to Chicago to see yeah. Chicharito play. So... It just it to me it, it it missed the mark on multiple levels, and I thought he could be a really really good player and a difference maker, especially in the World Cup year. But he received a multiple multi year guaranteed contract, paying him this much money, and there aren't a lot of good players around him. It's it's if you if you sign a player like this, 
at this kind of money, you need to have a, a guy who's doing what Zlatan did, scoring 27 yeah. goals. Well, maybe the cavalry is coming, to be fair, right? I think he does deserve a little bit more time with some of those new signings that sure. Chicago have. Um, I, I'm not going to write him off completely just yet, um, but the fire obviously have some big struggles in the attack. Paul, for me, the big one, though, it's Iguain, man. And this isn't a surprise. Like This is the same amount of money, roughly, that he made last year. Uh, we've seen how he's performed in his first season and a half in MLS. I don't think anyone was expecting huge things from him this year for Miami, especially considering the roster that they assembled around him or were kind of forced to strip down around him due to those sanctions. But I'm just going to read a few stats that I pulled. Iguain is making $5.8 million this year. Um, he has two goals and one assist in five regular season starts, which, to be fair, aren't terrible counting stats. Um, but he got yanked from the lineup uh, after their first five games. Miami was 0-4-1. That's one point from their first five games with a minus 10 goal difference. Those were in his five starts. In the six games since in MLS play that he has not started, they have three wins, two losses, and one draw. That's 10 points with an even goal difference. In his replacement, Leo Campana, who is on loan from Wolves and, and being paid just $135,000 by Miami, according to the MLSPA, by the way, has five goals and two assists in those six games. Uh, pretty remarkable difference there. I'm not saying it's entirely the Iguain for Campana switch, um, but I think there is some causation in, in that relationship. It's not purely a correlation situation. And, you know, I mean, we all know the body language. We all know kind of the effort. We all know everything about Iguain, but kind of puts a face on the disaster that has been in Miami over their first two plus seasons in MLS and one that, you know, they've turned things around a little bit here over the last few weeks, but I think it's going to be another long year for them and, uh, you know, a shift coming for sure after the 2022 season in South Florida. Yeah, well, I mean, it goes back again to roster building at the beginning of Inter-Miami and pivoting strategies in the middle of a season and going from a team that was building around younger players. And they had signed Pelle Matias Pellegrini and, and Julian Carranza. Carranza is playing well with Philadelphia Union on loan now. Pellegrini is playing again in Argentina. Um, you know, those players needed time. And instead, they went and signed Iguain and Matuidi. And both of those players have been nearly signed, nearly signed Sebastian Drusi. They, they were doing, planning. The plan was to sign Drusi. They they were deep in okay. negotiations with Drusi. He's an MVP candidate in Austin. And you know, think I think you have to think about the domino effect on the roster. You know, you had signed Pizarro, then Iguain came. Iguain and Pizarro didn't get along, and Iguain is dropping from his number nine to play the number ten position essentially, and and also wave his arms and yell at people, including Pizarro, and, <laughs> and that just led to like a bad situation for Pizarro, who's now gone and headed back to Mexico. I mean, it had that pivot in strategy. By the way, that season started during COVID. You know, yeah. they signed these young players, they played two games, they lost both of them, then they had a couple months by themselves in Miami these young players not able to even meet with teammates or anything like that because of COVID. Then they go to the bubble and they lose all three games in the bubble. And that's essentially what caused what we ended up seeing the pivot in strategy starting zero and five it was an embarrassing start for Miami. Um, but it was like a weird start and it changed the transfer market. There was a lot of weird stuff happening. Um, and, and what happened was by that, by hitting the panic button at that point in time, you've now created a multi-year, 
rebuilding process that required this season because of the sanctions from paying Matuidi under the table that were that were eventually um, self-reported and 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 punished by Major League Soccer, self-reported by Inter Miami ownership, and and because there was <laughs> that's a, that's a kind way of putting that's it. That's what it was. It was it was uh, there was a, <laughs> a, essentially a conflict between owners and and it was self-reported. Um, by Marcelo Claré. They told on them. One owner got mad at the other owners and told on his other owners. Right. Is what happened. Yeah. And and my point being that MLS didn't discover it on their own. Yes. They didn't investigate and find anything. It was this was never would have been found. Um but you know what's happening this year with Miami? That's part of the plan for Chris Henderson. He had yeah. to do this. Um, and, and we reported that, you know, when I wrote about Miami last year, that this was going to look like this, this year, um, it'll be a big, big off season for them to, to move Iguain off the books. Um, uh, Matuidi already is off the books. They'll have some more flexibility. Technically not off the books, not Matuidi. off the actual books of what the owner's paying, but he doesn't count as a DP yeah. on their roster. They're going to, they're going to start to have a little bit more flexibility to, to start to add some bigger pieces, what those pieces look like, still TBD. But yeah, I mean, I, I would say Guayin goes down as one of the, you know, up there as one of the worst DP signings in, in MLS history. Yeah, I think so, which is kind of astonishing considering his career and his resume. Uh, one last quick note on Miami. Um, they're paying Iguain, uh $5.8 million, as I mentioned. Rodolfo Pizarro, um, part of his salary is being picked up by Monterey. We don't know how much. He's making 3.35 total. Um, we know and, it's not enough to move him off the books as a DP. Well, that's because they didn't get a loan fee. Yeah. Not well, you, if you move somebody on loan and salary, you basically have to knock down their cap charge to under DP status to move them off of there DP you go. status. So they're paying at least half of that $3.35 million then. Um, and then Blaise Matuidi, he's listed at $1.5 million on the MLSPA documents. Paul Jorge Mas told you that he's making more than $5 million per year. So he's getting paid that money to sit around and do nothing which I don't know sounds kind of nice good gig if you can get it uh I do want to stick more on the player side here in the first segment and we'll get more into the team situation in the second um there are a few interesting shifts I thought in salaries around the league um Lucas Zellerayan Columbus crew star playmaker he was on nearly two million dollars 1.9 million last fall uh he's now on 3.7 million dollars nearly doubling his salary from 2021 to 2022 yamar andrade seattle center back he also just about doubled his salary going from 387 thousand to 720 thousand austin trusty in colorado with a big jump of his own going from 431k in 21 to 890k this year he of course is going to arsenal soon um i i don't know there's a lot there, I think, <laughs> to that story. Uh, I would be surprised if he ever took the field for Arsenal, but he's going to be leaving the Rapids. Maybe he'll be going on loan, uh, maybe to a championship club. I don't know if he even qualifies for a work permit, even in the championship. Um, so that could be a hurdle there. Uh, Raul Ruiz Diaz in Seattle, $3.2 million now, up from $2.1 million last year. And Albert Rusnak in Seattle, taking a pay cut from what he was on at RSL last year, which was $2.35 million. He's now on $1.87 million for the Sounders. So some interesting shifts there. Anything stick out to you in that regard, Paul? Any other names that, that you saw getting an increase or decrease that, that jumped at you? No, I, I think these are the, the ones that kind of highlight it. I think all of them make, make sense. 
Um, Zellerion, I think we'd have to go back and look. Did he sign a new deal after they won MLS Cup? Uh, I don't know. Probably. I would assume. Like, my assumption it'd be is weird. That that's it'd what, be weird if he got that jump without a new contract. Yeah, I would. I would expect that that was like a new deal from winning MLS Cup and being kind of the catalyst in that run, and and that the jump was kind of delayed a year. Um, Yamar, uh, Yamar, same thing. Um, he just to interrupt. He signed a new contract in December. Zellerion. There you go. Um, Rui Diaz, I mean, some of these are self-explanatory. The trusty one, like you said, is a little bit more complicated. The Rusnak one, I think, speaks to what we talked about last episode and kind of the ability of the Sounders to lure good players to fit into a roster. Um, Rusnak was clearly willing to take a little bit less money to go and win, and he's already won one trophy for making that decision. Yeah. Paul, you, you do an annual list or, or sometimes annual list of, of a budget 11. I don't know if you're going to have time to put that together this year, but um, I will ask you because I know you started the process. Yeah. Uh, best bargains in the league. Who, who jumped out at you as guys who aren't getting paid enough relative to their level of production? Well, first of all, like I did start the process and I, and you know, I thought what was interesting and you guys pointed this out in your story is there was almost a 25% jump from last year to this year in the median salary in major league soccer from 200,000 last year to 200 and almost 250,000 this year, 248,333. And so, um, as I was doing the list, I think I did start to look at, you know, maybe cause my budget 11 usually goes for guys, 200 K or less in, in salary. Um, and I, I think I might have to adjust that. There aren't many anymore. They're just, there's not as many of them. And, um, I think that's notable, but there are some good players who are who are contributing and are on not a ton of money, um, and you know some of them are uh, obvious. Uh, Mamadou Fall with LAFC is on one hundred nineteen thousand dollars a year. Um, Campania, as you as you mentioned earlier, is on one hundred thirty six thousand dollars a year. Joel Water uh, Joel Waterman with Montreal, he's on one hundred thirty four thousand dollars a year. Alex Roldan is a guy as an example of somebody I wanted to maybe push into the list. He's on two hundred thousand dollar base salary, two thirty two five guaranteed compensation for the for the Sounders. I believe that's a new contract as well. Yeah, Omir Fernandez, a homegrown player for Red Bull, playing playing well this year, one hundred fifty five thousand. John Tolkien, $105,000 a year, also for Red Bull. Homegrown players help a lot when they start to produce. Gaga Slonina, $147,800. If you can get your homegrowns producing and starting games for you and playing well, it opens up room elsewhere in the roster to spend money because these guys are way outperforming their compensation. Um, I want to give a shout-out to a couple goalkeepers. Roman Celentano, a draft pick, $99,000, has been playing well in net for FC Cincinnati. Zach McMath with RSL has been starting games. He's on $200,000 a year. Um, Sean Nealis with the Red Bulls, under $200,000, know, Red Bull, if you look at their roster, it's a lot of guys <laughs> on homegrown deals. And, yeah. and Tom Barlow on $188,000. That's why they're so low in the rankings, team rankings, which we'll get to next segment. Um, but yeah, there's just fewer players in that, in that um, in that range under 200,000. Now, if you step up above that, Sam, there's some contributors who I think are outperforming their salaries that aren't necessarily budget guys way, way lower. I'll let you point out some of those. Yeah. So continuing the goalkeeper theme, I think Dane St. Clair on 322 and Maxime Carpeau on 303, um, both are, are on pretty good numbers for their respective clubs. Jose Martinez in Philly on 276 remains a steal. For the union, he's so important to them and what they do. Diego Fagundes 
You know, a guy who I think throughout his entire career in MLS has been relatively underpaid. He was not making much when he was in New England most of the time there. He's on 450K in Austin, so it's not like he's on chump change, but he's leading the league in assists so far this season. He's had a really good start to the year for Austin FC. And then if you want to go up even further, right, Georgi Mihalovic, I, I believe, is on around 750. Um, he's been fantastic for Montreal for almost a year and a half now. So, you know, he his production is certainly worthy of a of a step up in in pay. I I don't know if he would get that. He just signed a new contract with Montreal when he arrived there from Chicago. Um I would throw Christian Roldan into that group as well. Uh he's even higher. I think he's in the 900 range. Um but he he plays at a best 11 level for the Sounders and has been um been excellent for them this year. Um I don't know if he's going to be getting a race. They have all three of those DP spots filled up and I'm guessing they don't have a ton of room of a ton of room to maneuver with the cap in Seattle. Uh, but another one that's sort of outperforming his deal and then same deal. Tati Castellanos. He's just north of a million, but he's the best striker in the league. Um I would imagine he'll get sold this summer and, and he'll get a race to go along with that with whatever new team he ends up at. Um Maybe he'll get sold for $15 million. Maybe he gets sold for $20 million, But uh, I can't imagine he is long for NYCFC at this point. Yeah, I mean, NYCFC, I, it's, it's kind of hard to analyze for me. You know, I look at their their roster. You know, we'll go, we'll, we'll go into this more in the next segment. But just overall, I mean, really efficient use of funds and, and not surprising based on the infrastructure that they have that just far, far, far surpasses anything else in MLS. Um, yeah. Sam, what are some of the worst salaries that you saw when you were going through the list? Um, for I'll start just really quickly. There are two two teams who I think are paying way more than they should be for their production, and it's the Galaxy and Chicago Fire. Not a surprise for both of the, that both of those teams have two DPS at least who are you know not producing to the level they're being paid in in LA. It's Douglas Costa at three million dollars a year, Cabral one point six five million. Uh, in Chicago, it's Gaston Jimenez at two point three six million. Shakiri at eight million dollars. Um, I think that we don't of, we don't know how much Torres is. We making. don't know how much Torres is making, and he's only played one game so far, so it's do, still TBD. Do you have any that. sense? By the way, you you broke the news of his signing, didn't you? I don't know what his salary is going to be at, but they paid a six million dollar transfer fee for him. So I'm I'm guessing I'm assuming that it'll be somewhere in the neighborhood of two million dollars a year, somewhere around there. Yeah. That was what would make sense to me, considering what they paid. But I don't know the salary. Yeah. Um, well, some of the others are, are kind of familiar names. Uh, probably a lot of carryover from last year. Frank O'Hara for Dallas, three point two three million to be their backup striker for the second straight year. Um, new new guy that he's backing up now. <laughs> it was transitioned from Ricardo Pepe to Jesus Ferreira. Um, Iguain we mentioned. Who knew in Minnesota? Uh, who knew that you could pay a striker $2.7 million and get so little production? Uh, I could not resist. Amazing. And, and I won't apologize. No. Um, Jimenez, you mentioned Brenner, you know, not to pile on here, $2.2 million, um, for a guy that doesn't really play all that much. Edison Flores has been really disappointing for DC United. He's on $1.73 million. Uh, Ake Loba, not found it yet for Nashville. He's on $1.5. Was their highest paid player 
until Mukhtar and Zimmerman got their new deals. We don't know what those numbers are. Well, we know Zimmerman's. Those are he, he's two point five or so a year. We don't know Mukhtar's. And I was actually having a conversation with somebody about that this morning, Paul. Um, what do you do? You think Mukhtar will be paid more than Zimmerman? Do you think he'll be paid the same? I don't think he'll be paid less. My, I would sort of I would sort of guess they're at the same number. So I know that Zimmerman's deal is structured where the average annual value is two and a half million over four years. I I think it's backloaded to to be a little bit higher in the back two years. My guess is that we when the numbers come out this summer, that Mukhtar will be the highest paid player this year, then Zimmerman, then Loba. And I would guess that that would stay the same for next year. So my, my assumption is that Mukhtar is going to be on around that same two and a half million a year. And that maybe they kind of structured the deals to not overlap with like front loading both Zimmerman and Mukhtar, if that makes sense. Got it. Um, sort of. I think I follow you. I'd be surprised though, Sam, if, if Mukhtar is paid significantly less than what the AAV is for Zimmerman, that average of 2.5 million. That would, that would be yeah. surprising to me. Um, and then two others, a tier lower in, in spend are two free agent signings from this past year. Francisco Calvo on $925,000 and Jordi Reyna on $800,000. I, I just don't get it. <laughs> like, I don't. Um, like, I'd have to ask about this, but I, when I was doing, I was, when I was starting the best, the budget 11 process, I was on um, American Soccer Analysis website looking at goals. Calvo added. has good rating. He's, his yeah. goals added is actually pretty high. It's like top five yeah. in the league right now. Yes. So Calvo, you know, I, he, but that's Calvo. He can play some really good games, right? And then he can play some really bad games, yeah. right? So like kind of a very streaky defender. Jordi Reyna makes even less sense than me to me than Calvo. This is a guy that hasn't produced in like three seasons. And he gets paid $800,000 by Charlotte, which we'll get into this more in the next, next segment. A team that really isn't spending very much money at all, or hasn't yet. Um, somewhat surprisingly, I would add. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what to say there. That that one didn't really make sense at all to me at the time. Doesn't make sense to me now. And here we are. So, those are two more. Um, any others that jumped out to you? I think I claimed all of them. No, I think I think yeah, I think we covered a lot of ground here. In general, I, I think that um, you know we're seeing with with some of the names we rattled off here and how many of them are in the, the highest paid players in the league. I think Sam, it, it highlights some of what you've reported about and written about before, which is that. You know, the the structure of the league, the structure of the DP rule is a high risk maneuver for a lot of these teams. You miss on these guys, it, it has a big impact on your team, and usually it has a big impact for multiple years. So, um, you know, when we go through this salary list, I think it highlights that, that, you know, there's not much that the Galaxy can do to fix the top end of their roster for a few years because they've tied into these guys because kevin cabral is on an 18-year contract right same with chicago fire same with inner miami you know these are these are contracts that you're you're stuck with and you can't you know you can build the rest of your roster and try to maximize what you can get out of spots four through 30 really but you know realistically when you're competing against rosters like NYCFC and the Sounders that have been built built well and have hit on their DPs, it, it makes it an uphill battle for you to win a trophy. Absolutely. Uh, we'll talk more about the teams coming up next. Stay with us, Allocation Disorder. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Welcome back to Allocation Disorder. We are talking Major League Soccer salaries. We spent the first segment talking about a lot of different players and whether or not they're providing good value or if they need to up their performance to justify their hefty salaries. This segment will get into the meat of the team conversation. Uh, I don't think it's any surprise, Paul which team ranked at the top of the salary spend list, and that's Atlanta United, followed by the LA Galaxy, Inter-Miami, New England Revolution, Chicago Fire in fifth, six through 10, Seattle, NYCFC, Toronto, Dallas, and Columbus. Um, Toronto will soon be number one as soon as Insigne joins. Um, At the bottom, Real Salt Lake in last, Charlotte, Portland, Colorado, and Orlando as the bottom five, although Real Salt Lake will probably jump up, man, I don't know, quite a few spots, maybe into the top 20 uh, once their new signings, Jefferson Saverino and Anderson Julio, are accounted for. They were not in this list. The numbers in this list were current as of April 15th, so those two new signings did not make the cut there. Um, Another thing to add, another caveat that is very important, while these salary spend rankings are a good kind of indication of of the relative range of where teams are spending in MLS. They're by no means the end-all be-all, and that's because they don't account for transfer fees and loan fees. Uh, Atlanta United, good example. Yes, they are atop the salary spend rankings, but they spent more on transfer fees for Luis Araujo and Thiago Amada in the last, what is it, eight months? I think they spent about $30 million on those two transfers. So in those two alone, they've spent $10 million more, 50% more than their entire team payroll in salaries. So that is a huge, huge, huge expend dif- expenditure difference compared to the lower spending teams in the league, some of whom barely pay any transfer fees whatsoever. So that's that's a big differentiator here that isn't necessarily accounted for. Um, another thing, all the numbers aren't really accurate. Josie Altidore is listed at $4.6 million. All of that counts towards New England's number. New England's paying him less than one point six one. To five million per season or for this season uh his salary this year is that 1.6 number toronto's picking up some of that so um something to keep in mind there but generally these are a good sort of approximation that being said paul uh a few surprises to me in this list a few things that stood out but what are your kind of main takeaways what jumped out at you when you looked at these team rankings well i think a couple things first of all the fact that chicago is really a top four team in the league in spend, or I guess top five, because like you said, Toronto will jump to number one, then it would be Atlanta, LA, and then I think Chicago. Yeah, I think it'll be top four. If we add about two million for, for Jairo yeah, Torres, it'll Torres. jump them to top four. That to me stands out. Again, I wrote about Joe Mansueto, his investment. It shows it not just 
infrastructure wise, but on the first team, the problem is the results have been terrible. So two of the top four spending on salary teams in the league, um, LA and Chicago, I think you look at both of those and say, there are some big swings and some big misses there. I think I, I would include Atlanta in that, by the way. Yeah. Like sure. I know they've been injured sure. this year, but considering how much they spend, not just on salaries, but on transfers, they should be so much better than they and are. And I think it speaks to a lack of overall vision in those clubs of like, what are, what are you building towards? What what is the structure behind how you build? And and the Galaxy are probably closest to getting there, based on my conversations with Greg Vanny. I think he's trying to put together a vision for where the Galaxy will go over the next four or five yeah. years. I think I have the most faith in them. But the to, DPS to are right. still they don't make as much sense for that. Cabral was right. was just a miss. Um, Douglas Costa though, I don't understand what the thought process was in yeah. signing him to a DP contract. Whereas in Chicago and Atlanta, Atlanta just feels like the Galaxy have been. Like, let's just find the best player we can and add him. And, like, there's no real thought to, like, how this team fits together, how the pieces fit together. It's, it's let's try to recreate, let's chase getting another Almiron and Joseph Martinez instead of let's create a team, a model, and build around that. And same with the fire. It doesn't feel like there's a model to how they're building the roster. But what surprises me here, I think NYCFC being as low as they are. I mean, they're a top ten league team, but I, I would think how <laughs> they're good, seventh, man. They're seventh, they're not but that still, low. like I, I'm just surprised that the the salaries have come in on some of these guys as low as they have. I mean, it helps to have guys like Castellanos paid, you know, not very much considering yeah. his production in the league. But then when you when you go further down the list, LAFC in eleventh, you know, you'd think mm-hmm. that they would be higher, but they've they've not really pushed again at that higher number uh salary wise on on their dps and they have an open dp spot so that also that also factors in but at the bottom there's something really two teams that really stand out to me portland and charlotte and they stand out to me for different reasons the first is that charlotte has probably not probably definitely one of the richest owners in the league outside of nycfc and red bull which are conglomerates david tepper they are a low spending team they, they have not put a lot. And usually you see bigger money with expansion teams because they have a full empty roster to, to take some swings. They, yeah. they didn't really do that uh, at all in their DP no, spots. I, I'm, I'm looking at this right now and, and the 10.7, which is their guaranteed compensation number. That's probably not even the full boat of salary budget plus TAM plus GAM that's given to expansion teams. Right. And that includes a couple of guys who are DPs in Swiderski and Joswiak. To me, it, it looks like they were basically under this model of, hey, Colorado and Philly win without spending money. That's what we want you to do. Um, which also... I, do you think that's it? I, I mean, think that's an oversimplification, man, because Colorado and Philly have academies. It, it is an and, oversimplification, and but... And Charlotte does I, not because they're, they're new. I also think part of it is like... You have these owners coming in spending $300 million on fees. They don't have a training facility in Charlotte, so he hasn't had to spend to build that. He hasn't had to spend to build <laughs> well, a stadium either. He's, he's spent to build half of it in Rock Hill, South Carolina, although that was sort of for the Panthers. For the Panthers. That's an entirely for, different yeah. story. But, you know, it, it's just surprising to me considering the ownership and the, the I, how many season tickets they sold and the fact that they looked like they how could many PSLs be the next, they sold. Yeah, they yeah. could be the next Atlanta, and then they've just kind of come out and been like, bleh. Um, the Timbers ranking as low as they do is very surprising. And the reason it stands out to me is because way back in the day, the Timbers used to be considered, I don't want to say one of the higher spending 
the highest spending teams, but they were considered a team that was going to push the league forward and how they thought about spending, how they thought about signing DPs, and, the and ambitions. They, and they were going to be right in like the top of the second tier. Right. Of they were, that's how they were considered. Like exactly like in that second tier of spending. And what, why this matters is because Merritt Paulson's on the product strategy committee and Part of the way I think that committee was put together was to try to have representation of people who wanted to spend more and people who didn't, and to have that kind of debate exist within the infrastructure. And I think as the league has evolved, you know, Adrian Hanauer is not going to be among the elite spenders in Seattle Sounders. Merritt Paulson well, clearly not going to Seattle, be Seattle Seattle sixth in payroll. They they spend, but but again, you're not you're not talking about them as in the same way as Toronto or Atlanta. Yeah, I think I think Seattle is still where we just said Portland used to be, top of the second tier. Right, and they used to be top of the first tier. If you go way back, right? Yeah. The the point is that the league is evolving, and so then are the dynamics of the product strategy committee. And I think this with Portland kind of illustrates that that they're they're competing in a yeah. different tier now, and so they have to. And I don't mind this. Like they they move Valeri on, they restructure the deal for Blanco. Like they're they're clearly they have to be a little bit more targeted in how they spend and they need to get things right and they recognize that like they cannot miss on DPS and so it feels to me like this is one of those years where they're working towards something kind of a transition yeah there a little like maybe yeah. they're doing a little work on what is our next DP what do our next round of DPS look like but yeah. I think it you know it illustrates that that's kind of how the Timbers are probably going to have to function going forward is just to be really careful and smart on how they spend at the top of their roster and and that you know i think that informs how we think about the timbers and and kind of where how they can win what their what their equation is in in needing to win and i mean of course we we talk about this every year with salary recently but red bull being as low ranked as they have been it's it's very different than the rest of the red bull structure <laughs> they don't spend it all they they lean heavily on homegrown I, and pressing it's it's very weird so i don't know if you caught any of the red bull philly game from over the weekend but it was a rock fight as expected two teams that like actively are like we don't want the ball you take it we're gonna try and steal it from you in your own end and then we'll score like we don't want this ball it was all not love to watch it was not a pretty game of soccer right and I was joking with somebody about it earlier and, and and kind of, you know, we both came to this conclusion. Like, do you think Red Bull are, are like, like doing a bit here? Like, are they, are they trying to challenge themselves to be like, how little can we spend on the first team and still have a measure of success? Like, is that like the game they're playing here? I, like, cause I don't really know what the objective is with them because it's not, it doesn't seem like it's to develop players for Salzburg or Leipzig because they're not really in that space at this point. Um, it doesn't seem like it's to win MLS cups because they can't realistically contend for those with the team that they have. It just seems like, okay, we're comfortable making the playoffs and just kind of carrying on, um, which, you know, credit to the people on the ground because they do make the playoffs. Right. And they do pretty well and they always overperform how much they spend on that team. But I don't really I just don't get it. I think I don't get it with that. I think it's more of like the Philadelphia Union model. It's like maybe we can put a roster good enough to win a supporter shield, right? Get the best record in MLS and compete, have a shot for MLS Cup. Because right, it's but a Philadelphia has structural limitations in terms of how much money their yeah, yeah. ownership no, has. But, but, Red but Bull think does about, not. Think about the model of Red Bull and how it's evolving and changing. I was talking with somebody the other day about this, specific to what they look like at the top now and the the change in mentality for Red Bull 
about how they think of Leipzig. And we saw that on display with Jesse Marsh. He followed Nagelsmann, and Nagelsmann had evolved Red Bull Leipzig. They were no longer the typical Red Bull team of just run and press and don't worry about playing soccer as much, keeping the ball. That you know, the whole Red Bull model was playing uh, against the ball, not having the ball like you just described. And and Nagelsmann came in and said, no, 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 we're going to do both. And when Jesse Marsh came in, he tried to move things back to the full Red Bull model. And the players didn't want to do it. You never go full Red Bull. And yeah, and they they pushed back on it and it didn't work. And even Jesse said, you know, according to all the reports and his own quotes was, I'm not the right fit. They don't want to play this style. And and Leipzig has maintained this, the path that Nagelsmann, they went back to Nagelsmann's path. They're evolving how they think about what With Leipzig Tedesco. needs to do in order to compete, to truly compete. They can't just play that model. Salzburg is a little bit of a mix because they do have a legitimate budget because they've sold players for What does this have to do with New York? I'm getting there. The point (laughs) is that with the Red Bull model, you can win an MLS. You can maximize cheaper players. Not with the team that they have. Sure. Look at where they are in the standings right now. I mean, like, Paul, is this team anywhere near what the team was in 2018 or 2015? It doesn't they their point is like we don't need to spend here to compete. We don't need to spend here to compete. Well, competing and winning are two different things. Yeah, but to to your point like what is the difference? Like what is the, like if they are in contention for a supporter shield or in contention for MLS Cup. This this is not a European table where they're, you need, they're not, you need they're to not, finish first. They're not going to be in contention for a shield or a cup when it's all said and done. They're not. That's my opinion. All right. Well, I just think that they look at things like this is the perfect league to say we don't need to spend that much money to get really good soccer players. Well, they they don't. That is that is true. But there's no reason they can't be more, you know, closer to where NYCFC is. I agree with right that. Now. But I think that they I think they were in the process of that. And we've seen that there's been a change again at Red Bull at the top. Thelwell leaving. They were starting to spend a little bit more. You know, they went and signed Klamala. They, they were starting to spend, who, by the way, is another guy who surprisingly, when I was on the American Soccer Analysis site, has a pretty high goals added number right now. Yeah, um, But, you know, I just think, I do think it is a sort of like, to what you said, like kind of like a experiment in a way of like, how high do we have to go to really compete? <laughs> and like, let's find that number and just stick to it, you know? It, it's, it, I don't even know. It's, it's bizarre. Um, also, Paul. Is it is it time that we need to recalibrate our feelings about football club Dallas? Ninth in the league in payroll. They spent $7 million to sign Alan Velasco on a transfer fee this winter from Independiente in Argentina. Um, you know, they're they're paying 15 million bucks in salary right now. That's well above most of the league. It's well above where they've been in the past. They were one of the biggest risers. Uh, in all of MLS from year to year in salary spend, 25% jump. Um, are the Hunts really going for it? Are they trying? I would say they're trying more. I mean, they, they added Velasco. That's the big splash. You know, Ariola adds to the salary. Jesus Ferreira's jump and pay adds to the salary. I don't million, think, million bucks jump. I don't think that Jesus. those guys would represent like we're going for it. 
but certainly Velasco does, and I think I think it's a better better model for success to have guys who are really high MLS performers making up the core of your team, like Ferreira, like Ariola. You're getting Pommy call back. Those guys are going to help your level, and then you need to hit on the stars. And they went for one of them, and you know a lot of people felt really confident about that Velasco signing, um, and and so. I think it's certainly encouraging that they they look more like they want to compete for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned Charlotte earlier, and, and that one is one that I don't really understand either. And they still have another DP spot open, so who knows how what they do with that? I mean, I look at that and I I wonder: Does David Tepper trust Zoran Kurnetza to go out and spend his money? Like that's the question I have. Uh, we don't have an answer to that question, um, but Charlotte is a club. They haven't been terrible on the field by any means. Well-organized. I think they're well-coached, competitive in basically every single game. Um, so credit to them there. Uh, defensively, pretty strong. But just expected a lot more ambition from them. Um, and again, I'm, I'm going to keep hammering these teams. The Galaxy and Atlanta should be so much better than they are, given how much money they spend. And it's frankly a little bit of a joke that they're not. Atlanta, I will give the benefit of the injury situation. They have been hammered this year by those miles Robinson, Brad Guzan, Joseph Martinez, Ozzy Alonso, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, that doesn't change what happened last year or the year before, <laughs> um, or even the year before that. Uh, and, and the galaxy have been bad for five, six years now. And you did that story that with Greg Vanny, that was good, but some of the structural issues there, they didn't even have a video room at their facility. Like, they didn't ha- like like it's just wild to me, Paul, that you have the same two people at the top of that organization and Chris Klein and Jovan Karofsky that have been there the entire time since Bruce Arena left. And, and it, like, what have they been doing this whole time? I don't I don't really know. And it's kind of weird to me. They don't get get more heat for the poor results that the Galaxy have had over the years. So I don't know. We, we can take a quick break because we've been going for a while in this segment, but we have a lot more to discuss about a lot more different teams, as well as maybe some national team stuff that is very much in the news um, that we should probably at least mention before we get out of here. Stay with us, Allocation Disorder. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Welcome back to Allocation Disorder. Still breaking down this salary info. Paul, there is one team in MLS that exists on its own little island. Uh, literally and figuratively, as a matter of fact. And that is Club de Foot, Montreal. Uh, they kind of are just up there in Quebec speaking French, and no one really pays attention to them, good or bad. They deserve to be paid attention to. 
because they are doing really well so far this season. They are leading the Eastern Conference. They have 20 points. Wilfried Nancy is doing an excellent job. Georgi Mihalovic is having another great year. Uh, and they are doing this. They're balling on a budget, man. They are not very high. They're 15th, pretty much right in the middle of the league in the overall salary rankings. A lot of their $12.9 million payroll, actually just about a quarter of it, goes to one player in Victor Wanyama. Um, so the rest of their roster has been assembled relatively cheaply, um, but very effectively by Olivier Renard, who is their sporting director. Um, we don't, this is a failing of ours. I don't think we talk about him enough on this show or in our writing, but he's done a nice job, in my opinion, of trading for pieces, a la Porig Smith in Colorado, kind of doing a lot of the same things that they've done. They've integrated some players from the academy as well. They have a nice little mix going on up there, and they're getting very good results. Um, so credit to them. Um, and I just wanted to, wanted to kind of shout them out um, for what they've done. I think they're going to continue having success this season. And Vasily, what, what do you see Vasily as well, somebody who's been there for a long yeah. time. I don't know how to pronounce his last name, unfortunately, but you know, some Kremanzidis, yeah, is that right? I think that's right. We're going for it's it. A good, it's a good swing for sure. Um, <laughs> but somebody who's been there a long time knows the league and has you know probably been a voice that's been valued there in some of these internal trades and valuations of yeah. players. Um, which is what we talk about all the time and kind of how you build out your front office and, and how you delegate and put trust in different people to to put together a winning roster. Um, Orlando City, to me, is another one that, you know, has been working with a limited budget compared to the rest of MLS and has started to and has hit on a lot of guys who have come in on smaller numbers relative to um, most other teams and has done well. Orlando twenty fourth in payroll, yeah, eleven point five million. Twenty fourth in paywall, and and yes, they're they're adding a, a another. Did you say player. paywall? Was that a Freudian paywall. slip right that, there? That is definitely a Freudian slip. But too much. Subscribe to the athletic. the athletic. Yeah, um, Gaston <laughs> Gonzalez was signed. He's out with an ACL. It's two million dollar transfer fee or so. But we know his salary isn't more than six hundred and twelve thousand five hundred because he's a U twenty two player. So if you add that, maybe they jump up to set eighteenth instead of twenty fourth, but. In general, I think that they've done a really good job of finding players at those lower price points. And we talked about this last time, Sam, in that they look at these loan moves as ways to find players, kind of see how they fit in the team, and, and then sign them on. Um, it's something Ricardo Morera did well with Columbus under Greg Berhalter, that that front office did well. Luis Muzi was part of an FC Dallas technical team that, you know, didn't have as many hits internationally, but certainly knew how to build a homegrown well, territory and then I had mean, some he, budget guys that worked out to well. To be fair. The DPs that they missed on, right? Dallas of old, Mauro Diaz, Fabian Castillo, they had some hits as well. Right. But those guys were brought in on smaller numbers and then worked their way up. I mean, Castillo came in as a 19-year-old and didn't really break out until he was like 22. It was like his third or fourth season in MLS that he became the Fabian Castillo that we talk about. They were very patient in his development. Um, so... Anyways, both Luis Musi and Ricardo Moreira, what they've done in Orlando, I think deserves um, a nod. And, you know, I'm interested to see what happens now because Orlando City was bought by the Wilfs. They have a new owner who, you know, have come in and shown right away that they are willing to spend more. They've started to, to buy some players. Facundo Torres, big transfer fee. Facundo Torres, um Cara as well, and then and then not it not a huge fee Gonzalez, but they they're going out and spending more on I think spending on transfer fees. Previously, I think the model under Flavio Augusta de Silva, the previous owner, was like 
Kaka was $7 million. Nani was the one big name. And then it was kind of smaller transfer fees around that. So I'm interested to see how this transition continues. But I, I think that they're, they certainly stand out to me at 24th in payroll as, as a team that's maximizing what they're doing dollar for dollar right now. Yeah, and they're not the only team with new owners that is near the bottom of these rankings. In fact, all three teams with new owners are near the bottom. RSL, at the bottom, we discussed that won't be the case for very long. Orlando, 24th, and Houston, uh, who was bought by Ted Siegel just about a year ago now, uh, in 22nd, although that they'll go up relatively significantly once Hector Herrera joins. We don't know the salary for him, um, but he'll be coming over from Atletico Madrid in the summer. I would expect probably at least four million bucks a year for. Yeah, Acho, I would. Acho, I would right? So, like, if we do the math on this, I'd expect Houston to jump all the way up, maybe into the top ten, yeah. somewhere around fifteen million. I would expect RSL to jump to. RSL will probably be closer to I think seventeenth, eighteenth, and like I said, yeah. Orlando is probably at seventeenth or eighteenth when you add yeah. Gonzalez's you know U twenty two salary. So they're not where they are now, but I think you can see that they're in this transition period, right? Right. Um, but just interesting, you know, for anyone that that was hoping that those new owners would come in and really just like open the pocketbooks right away. Well, you got to clear some contracts first, and, and Houston did. Know, I mean, going Houston, and Houston, a big, did, Houston did, right? But but it's one player. But you have to navigate the other things on your roster, and you can't just spend it all at once. So, um, curious to see where that goes. Particularly, I think for Houston, because I, I think we have a good feel for Orlando. I think they'll probably be middle class ish, maybe upper middle class under the Wolves. I think RSL will be kind of in the middle under their new owners, David Blitzer and Ryan Smith. Um, but but I don't really know where Houston will end up. So I'm, I'm curious to see where that that basically results. Uh, Paul, one thing that we like to talk about on the show is allocation disorder. No, uh, allocation of funds uh, in rosters, specifically the way that the MLS model sort of creates this system where teams are, are relatively top-heavy. And, and you look at some clubs in MLS, the Chicago Fire, this is remarkable. You want to take a guess? Do you know that? Did you? You I mean you know it? You read the article. Jeff Reuter put this together in the article that we wrote. Um, they're spending seventy-seven point eight percent of their overall payroll on their five highest-paid players, and that doesn't and that, include Hiro. And that does not include Hiro Torres. That number will go higher once he is added. It'll probably end up a, right around eighty, give or take. And and they're like. They're spending one of the highest. <laughs> they have the high one of the highest overall spends in the entire league. Eighty percent of it, roughly, on their top five highest paid players, and this is what you get, man. Like, soccer requires more than five players, and by the way, not all of those five highest paid players are, are really doing much for the team. So if you're missing on those guys, you're in a world of hurt. And why does this happen? Well, part of it is is kind of foolish management, in my opinion, from the fire. Um, but part of it is, is MLS roster rules sort of dictate if you're a high-spending team, a lot of it is going to go to your top three players, your designated players, and then a few guys down. And and, and those are the guys that you can spend whatever you want on and so on and so forth. And so those percentages are going to be naturally pretty high. Uh, the other teams that, that have those high percentages on the top five, it's sort of who you would expect. It's Toronto. It's Miami. It's Atlanta. It's New England. Um, and, and those teams are way up there. One team that you would think maybe has a high percentage, 
but does not. In fact, has a relatively low one. New York City FC, uh, second lowest allocation of top five spend in the league. Just 43% of their payroll is going to their five highest paid players. Uh, that number is actually probably artificially inflated because it includes Alexandria Matriza, who is on loan and is not with New York City FC at the moment. Um, and you look at their roster, right? And they don't really have holes. They have good players all over the field. And they have talent all over the field. And they have some game-changing talent in a lot of different places. Um, so credit to them for being able to kind of figure it out. Some of that is CFG and being part of that group. Some of that is developing players who arrived uh, like like Atati Castellanos with, with not much of a resume or not much of a pedigree and turned into something really great in this league. And part of it is just signing young guys in those high high price spots, right? So Talis Magno, for instance, and, and Paul, I've been talking for a long time. I'm well, sorry. Well, but yeah. Talis Magno, they signed him for an $8 million transfer fee that could rise to twelve. He's only making, I think, like 1.3 in salary, right? And that's just because he's a young player, and, and that's what you—that's what happens with young players. You sign them for high transfer fees, and maybe the salary isn't quite as high as you would expect. Well, I think I think a lot of it goes down to City Football Group, and for multiple reasons. One, when you sign a guy like Castellanos on on not a lot of money and not a lot of pedigree, that's because you have a really good scouting network that. Dwarfs. And because he was in City Football Group well, that's already, what I'm saying. it dwarfs. It <laughs> that's dwarfs not a scouting network. Else. That's just a network. Yeah, yeah, but that 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 all starts from the network, right? That all of these teams that City Football Group owns are built around this idea of having a huge net that you're casting for players, and then finding the right places to put these players to develop. And NYC FC benefits from that, and we see it all up and down their roster. And I think it also. There's a huge negotiating advantage that NYCFC holds over every team in MLS and that you can sign some of these players on lower salaries because you're telling them, I'm signing you to City Football Group. We have a plan of development for you. And all of these players are going to think to themselves, I can get to Manchester City. I'm good enough. It's going to work for me. And that helps in your negotiations, period. It just does. And so it's going to help them sign some of these players to smaller numbers. It's going to help them to structure deals in ways that are, are beneficiary, where they are the beneficiary of these MLS rules, in my opinion. Like it helps NYCFC. I think NYCFC has no problem finding players for U22 initiative because it's going to be easier for them to negotiate guys on those types of deals. Um, not to mention that some of these guys are probably signing from city football group clubs in South America, which probably also helps. Santi Rodriguez. Yeah. For instance. Um, yeah. But I think it also it's worth pointing out that NYCFC had done a really good job with their academy. And that helps bring numbers down too, because you have players who aren't making a ton of money on homegrown deals who are contributing to the first team. So basically they are just incredibly well balanced in how they build. They've done yeah. a really good job in developing and getting their academy up to speed very, very quickly. A number of products of the academy, both in the U.S. men's national team right now and who have moved abroad. And they, you know, credit to City Football Group scouting structure. They've gotten the signings right. Um, and they've had to really, if you look up and down this this roster, they haven't really had to lean very heavily into essentially using the MLS trade market to sign players. I mean, Sean Johnson yeah. stands out as one, but when you go through the rest Do of the they roster... they have, like, any others? No, I mean, I, not really. Not really. I, no. There's no... It's, it's a very international roster, 
And yeah. it's it's one that was built mostly outside of MLS. Even the uh, some of the other Americans they have, they brought in from abroad. Um, Keaton, Keaton Parks. Parks is one. I mean, the the Brazilian American Keaton Parks. Yeah, <laughs> Keaton Parks is one. Um, I, I was just looking at the other one, but they, you know, Chris Gloucester. C- Chris Gloucester is another one. Zell Alem they brought in from Sporting Kansas City. That's another one within the league, but you know he he was mostly known for what he did at Arsenal. Arsenal legend. Um, yeah. So you know it's it's just a really interesting roster, and it's one that I think speaks to uh, what it looks like when you have a significant amount of investment in your scouting infrastructure around the world. That you know they're 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 operating at an, a whole different. I mean it's, they're they are. It's the biggest but club they, in the world, right? It's, but they've still they've still structured it smartly for MLS, right? They've still shown good understanding of it all and, and pieced the puzzle together nicely. And I think that's shown by that forty three percent number. And I think yeah. it's shown by the fact that they have ten players making more than the max salary, which is tied for most in the league with Columbus. Uh, so that's another kind of interesting stat. Paul, I want to transition real quick, and, and we're going to wrap shortly. But um, any any other reflections? on the MLS salary data before we move into a couple of national team notes. No, I think, again, every time I, I'm just going to hammer this point one more time. I'm sure we'll hear about it in the comments and all that. But, you know, again, it just every time I see these salary numbers, it just it just to me showcases kind of that MLS needs to rethink about DPs and and how they structure the salary rules and, and the pots of money that exist and and create a way where Models like NYCFC, the idea of spreading your money out becomes more of the norm and allows owners to more wisely invest those funds. Yeah, I would echo that heartily. A couple of things on the national team front. Big, big news. We are recording this show on Wednesday. Uh, Came out just a few hours before we started recording um, regarding equal pay and two new collective bargaining agreements for the U.S. women's national team and the U.S. men's national team. Uh, that they arrived at with U.S. soccer. Uh, the big headline is that it like legitimately equalizes the money received and the rate it's received at for both teams. So Meg Linehan and I have a story out on this at The Athletic that will do a better job of breaking it down. Meg is going to have a podcast out um, with some of the key principles uh, from the women's side as well that I would encourage all of you to check out. That'll probably come out before this show does. So So please go out and take a look at it. Um, but kind of the, the key thing here, Paul, was the pooling of prize money from FIFA, from World Cups. And this was kind of the hurdle that needed to be cleared in order for this deal to be reached. Uh, U.S. soccer equalized all of their payments, um, but they don't control how much money FIFA gives to teams that participate in the men's and the women's World Cups. The money that they give to the men is exponentially higher than the money that they give to the women for those two respective tournaments. Uh, And that creates a huge gap in the overall compensation for the men's and women's national team. So what ended up happening is the men and the women were able to come together and reach uh, an agreement, basically, where they pool all of the money from both tournaments and split it evenly. So how it's going to work in practice is the 2022 World Cup, the U.S. will get a certain amount of prize money depending on how far they advance the 2023 world cup in australia and new zealand for the women the u.s will get a certain amount of prize money depending on how far they advance they will take those two numbers put them together u.s soccer will take 10 percent of that number and then the 
the the men's and women's national teams will split the remainder equally, the remaining 90%. Same sort of deal for 2026 and 2027, except it's an 80-20 split with the federation instead of 90-10. Um, there's a revenue share agreement that's new, equal split there. There's a ticket sold, like revenue share agreement as well, equal split there. Um, equal pay for every day in camp, uh, equal bonuses for game outcomes, uh, same friendly tiering system. Um, everything's like legitimately equal. And so credit to everybody involved for getting this over the line. Um, Walker Zimmerman spoke with media uh, about this deal. Um, and, you know, because this is primarily a men's show, I will, a men's soccer show, I will um, sort of highlight what he had to say. But basically he said that, you know, we had a chance to come together and make history and it wasn't an easy process for the men to sort of decide to take away some of their own money um, to, to make it equal from the FIFA pool, um, but that they eventually got to the point where they understood what was right and they understood they had a chance to make history. I'd be curious to know more about the behind the scenes there and maybe we'll find that out over the course of time, Paul. Um, about what that process looked like because the women have been fighting for this for years and years and years and decades and it's been long it's been protracted there have been court cases um, and the men sort of came in very late here <laughs> um, with not a ton of player involvement from what we understand and you know magnanimously agreed to say hey yeah we're going to split this prize money um, and, and credit to them for that uh, but this is very much a, a sort of women's national team victory in my opinion so anyway, an interesting story. Any thoughts on it, Paul? Yeah, I mean, I think I think part of what you're talking about there is like, for example, I think what you guys had in the article is the men would get $13 million if they advance out of the group at the World Cup, and the women would get $7 million if they win the World Cup. That right? The women hasn't been decided yet, but that's like a hypothetical Right, situation. let's say somewhere around there. So the men mostly, would... Mostly the key point here is the men could lose every single group stage game, and they would probably still get more money from FIFA than if the women than the women did if they win in 2023 right and, and let's say they they advance out of the group and get that 13 million instead of splitting that 13 million after you add what the women get you're probably dropping down your split from 13 million to nine or ten million right yeah. and and what i think that shows is a willingness to try to get to this point where you have equal pay and i thought what was important in reading your article and hearing what the players had to say was we're now fighting in this together to, to create change and to grow the yeah. game. And the men now have incentives to fight with the women to force FIFA to change, to get those prize, yeah. those prizes closer together. And that's really what the end goal of equal pay should be. It should be on pushing FIFA to do more in the women's game and to put more yep. you know, into the prize money to understand that there is a huge audience there for the Women's World Cup. And maybe it will never get to where the men's is, um, but... you. You know, investment drives opportunity and valuing the women's game is going to is only going to increase the viewership and increase the buy in. We see it around the world with women's sports. We see it around the world with women's football. You look at what's happening in Mexico. You look at what's happening in England. You look at what's happening in NWSL. You look at what's happening in Spain and in France. You know, invest in women's sports and you will get the return in that investment. And and so now I think what this does hopefully is it drives the men to um to be more active in that and they've they've been publicly supportive over the years but mostly through you know blanket it's been relative been relatively quiet though. I would say mostly through blanket statements released by the union as one kind of voice and one kind of statement. And and here I don't think anyone can knock the action, right? To right. say we are yeah. we are doing this. We are in it. 
um, yeah. to make sure it's equal. No, it's impressive. It's impressive for sure. Um, um, but it does highlight but, that to me. It does highlight and, the disparity from FIFA. And they have a huge they have a huge platform now. Yep. Right. And it's a World Cup year. They're going to have increased media attention. They're going to have an increased platform with FIFA than they normally do. So I'm curious to see if if they push any harder. I asked Walker Zimmerman about that. He was like, you know, we'll get to that when we get to that. Like today is about talking about this deal. But I would expect that they'll do something before before the World Cup and then even after, right? That platform ain't going anywhere. 2026. It's getting bigger. Yeah, exactly. So so it, it'll be curious to see how this plays out over the next few years. Um, but a nice step. I mean, genuinely, Paul, I, I think I can say this. And like I saw this news and I, I understood it and started reporting and learning more about it. And it's like, it's a cool thing. You know, like Meg and I, our piece, it, it, we sort of played our lead off the one nation, one team slogan and how it's never felt like more fitting than it does right now. And I think that's true. Um, and I think it, it kind of creates some good vibes and a good positive end to a story that really was cantankerous and difficult for a number of years. So good outcome in the end, uh, for sure. Um, one other national team note, there's going to be a roster next week for the nation's league games and friendlies in June. We'll have some content up about that on the site. Um, I don't know if we need to get into it right here. This show has been pretty long already, (laughs) but thank you for sticking with us. This is a fun one. Uh, every single year, um, Paul, I hope you had fun. Oh, it's just so much fun. Just yelling about overpaid players. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, one last shout out new who deserves more money. Um, that's all I have to say. Thank you for listening to allocation disorder. I'm Sam. He is Paul until next week.